Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, the tennis podcast by fans on today's episode. Sabalenka sizzles to her third straight title in Abu Dhabi. David Ferrer splits with Sasha Zverev. And Dennis Kudler tests positive for COVID mid-match in the Aussie Open qualifying. Kim, the tennis season is well and truly underway. Lots of tennis across across the world. We've got Aussie Open qualifying as well in the in the Middle East. But uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think we just want to touch on our crowdfunding campaign. Um, it's closed now. Um, we just want to say a big thank you to everyone who donated um, to support the show. We raised in total, I think we raised over £600, which was an absolutely uh, fantastic, just fantastic to see really um, and we just want to say really big thanks from from myself and Kim it's beyond our uh, wildest dreams uh, raising that amount of money and it's going to go really far in helping us putting on the passing shot in 2021. Yeah, we're absolutely delighted um, with the response that we got. So massive thank you to everyone who contributed. Um, it is really, really, really very much appreciated. Um, so massive thank you again. <laughs> I keep saying massive thank you now. So <laughs> maybe we should get on with the show, Joel. But, um, we will be in touch with all of those who did donate um, regarding the various kind of... Um, prizes and rewards and such like so um just look out for that um but yeah joel we've had we've had tennis tournaments back we've had slam qualifying uh i've had quite a lot of other news and bits of pieces so we've got quite a, a jam-packed show i think this week uh, let's let's cut to the chase shall we and go to abu dhabi which i think was obviously like the biggest tournament this week um for the wta it was a wta 500 event their their new um their new points um, on offer. Um, and we had Sabalenka picking up where she left off at the end of last season, claiming her third title on the trot and her 15th win in a row. What did you make of her uh, performance over the week? I know she was absolutely fantastic. She well and truly has picked up where she has left off last season. Uh, you know, apart from a, you know, a slight blip in, you know, her quarterfinal against Rybakina where she dropped, you know, dropped that uh, middle set. But, um, yeah, she, apart from that, she's, she played absolutely fantastic tennis. I think it's the Sabalenka we all thought. Um, you know, we, we would see, I don't, I don't think anyone was kind of doubting her sort of, you know, credentials on a tennis court, but I think that, you know, the, almost the next question now is, are we going to see this sort of tennis, um, you know, in the grand slams? That I think is still the, the question unanswered. We know that she can, she can do it at this level. And, and this was just kind of, you know, Abu Dhabi was just kind of a, a testament to that. You know, I think she was just kind of hitting her, you know, her opponents off court, really. And I think that was really kind of the story from, from round one 
all the way through to the final and not really anyone had um, you know an answer to her. That semi-final, I think particularly between Sabalenka and Sakari, Sakari had come through you know, quite a few notable scalps, you know, Kenin and, and Muguruza. Um, but the fact that Sebalanka was able to dis- dispatch her quite easily, three and two for me, really kind of, um, you know, raised my eyebrow there because I thought that was going to be quite a tough match. But yeah, Sab- Sabalenka, she's in a real, real, real groove at the moment. And, you know, she's probably, you know, we, we're kind of obviously looking at kind of form of, of players, you know, in these events to see, potentially you know who are the um you know the favorites going into into the Australian Open you'd have to say Sabalenka is is making a case for being um you know for being one of the the front runners uh, uh, early on yeah i mean uh, it's it's difficult isn't it because they've got the two week quarantine period it's going to be you know a couple of weeks actually till the Aussie Open so it's not like yes she's in this groove but it's not like a straightforward going straight into the slam so I don't know if how much of an impact that will have um, I also feel like with Sabalenka she's been in these kinds of positions before playing really well when it comes to the slam she just doesn't execute the game that we know she has so I'm, I'm also quite reluctant Joel to kind of get on the bandwagon but um, I mean yeah that Zachary semi-final I thought that could have been a bit of a barnstormer but it wasn't to be um, you know Sabalenka came through comfortably really um and the final was against uh kudermatova um or kudermetova i'm i i think we were debating weren't we joel before recording this how the correct pronunciation of her name is um so very sorry if um if i've said it wrong i'm trying to cover all bases um but she she got into her first wta final and um i mean she looks like a fairly decent prospect uh, perhaps to watch for the rest of the year because although the final was you know 6262 um you know kudermatova she had wins over you know svitolina this week um she came through against um, marta kostuk in the semi final and she'd been in the semi final position i think about four times before and kind of always fallen at that kind of semi hurdle so um to make it through into her first wta final obviously is you know one of the kind of first stepping points um for her career and uh yeah just just maybe a name to watch she's had wins over kind of Muguruza Pliskova last year so she's um you know making moves I think she really uh, is able to bring her game together on on a hard court. She likes playing on that surface, and you know, just thinking about kind of Russian, you know, in the context of of Russian tennis. Of course, we had Maria Sharapova retire last year. You know, looking at Russian tennis at the moment, uh, particularly on kind of the the women's side. You know, we're not talking about the sort of feast we had. You know, in the you know in the earlier kind of. Uh, you know, in the early sort of 2000s. And I think really that is potentially an opportunity for someone like Kudometova, who's, you know, 23 years old, to really kind of go and be that sort of, you know, Russian Russian number one. Because I feel like at the moment, you know, post in this sort of post-Sharapova world in, in Russian women's tennis, there's not really anyone who is is ready at the moment to kind of, uh, you know, step up and sort of take that, take that spot. Um, I think... Kudometova is kind of the number two Russian ranked player at the moment. I think Pavlachenkova. Alexandrova. It's certainly, I feel like, a spot that's there for the taking. And, and I feel like, you know, particularly with this result, Kudometova could, you know, it, you know, she could be on a path here, I think, to potentially, you know, solidifying herself as you know, Russia 
you know, Russia women's number one because she's playing tennis. I think that is, you know, is probably above her ranking at the moment. She, I mean, she went into this tournament unseeded um, and, you know, got to the final. So she must, she's going to be in, in good form. And I wouldn't be surprised if she kind of continues um, and kind of goes up the rankings even further. Daria Kazakina as well. Um, Anastasia Potapova. Uh, but yes, yeah, so there are there are a few Russians, but um, not not quite as many as I suppose. Yeah, the kind of Sharapova heyday. Um, but yeah, so that was Abu Dhabi. Great to see, obviously, women's tennis back on the back to the to the fore again, um, and a very worthy title win from Sabalenka. Um, Marta Kustuk as well. Obviously, we remember her, I think, from a few years ago. She yes. she broke through, didn't she? she? At age 15, I think, to reach the third I round. Of, <laughs> that of was bad, wasn't Open. it? We were, we were there <laughs> for that. And yeah, she, she got, I think she got wild card into qualifying and then, yeah, got all the way through to the, I think, third round of the, the main draw. So, um, you know, of course, I think she, you know, she's still very young. I still think she's only like 18 years of age, but it was great to kind of see her um you know come through to the the semi-finals as well um you know in in that bottom half um and uh yeah it's just it's just funny because i always remember her at that australian open a few years ago and i felt like she went into hiding a little bit but it's great to see her almost kind of pop her head back and be like oh yeah i i am here and um again she's going to be another talent um she's going to be another talent for the future is she going to do a Shviontek at some point this oh, year, perhaps? Wow. Um, but we should mention a couple of other things from Abu Dhabi. Uh, shocking start to Karolina Pliskova's season. She lost 6-2, 6-4 in the first round to Russian qualifier Anastasia Gasanova, um, who had never played anyone inside the top 100 before, uh, let alone someone of Pliskova's you know, ranking and, and calibre. Yet she... She won in straight sets. Um, sorry, it was in the second round. It, ignore me. Um, but yeah, I mean, what do you make of that? Obviously, Pliskova now working with Sasha Bayin. It, it, very different start to her normal seasons where she's kind of usually picking up titles at this time of the year. Yeah, very, very, very surprising. I think Pliskova, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't at the races that day. I'm not really sure why. I don't know if she's carrying an injury or something, but that was a very, very, very surprising result because, you know, talk about Pliskova, you know, these sorts of tournaments are really her, you know, you would say they are her bread and butter. We know that she's not been able to, you know, do it at Grand Sams, but she's been a very consistent performer, you know, on, on the tour. Um, I don't know if there's been a bit of, um, you know, lag from, um, you know, a hangover from, you know, last season, you know, I don't know if, if sort of lockdown or whatever has, has kind of impinged on her, you know, training, uh, you know, her training blocks in, in the build up. But yeah, I was very surprised to see, to see that um, because yeah, it was so, it was just so compre- comprehensive. I mean, two and four, that, that shouldn't really, that shouldn't really be happening, happening. I know it's early on in the season and I'm sure she's going to get, uh, you know, a lot better. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a, a surprise to see given that, these sorts of tournaments, you feel like, you know, she's always normally there or thereabouts, um, you know, at the, at the latter end. Absolutely. And then Gasanova is another Russian for you, Joel. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the more, the more Russians, the merrier. Um, but we also had uh, an interesting performance as well from Sophia Kenin. You mentioned earlier that Maria Sakari beat her, but the manner of the defeat uh, from, from two all in the second set with Kenin having taken the first set, Sakari then won 10 games in a row. 
um, bageled Kenin in that last set. Reminiscent for me of the Rome quarterfinal, Kenin versus Azarenka, where Kenin got double bageled, um, where we all thought, oh, what is Sophia Kenin doing? Uh, and then she went and made the final of, of Roland Garros. So do we think as a result of her being bagel, that she is going to do quite well. In, <laughs> Maybe uh, she Melbourne. wanted the bagel. She needs that bagel energy in the build-up <laughs> tournament to do to take her all the way through to the yeah, Grand Slam final. I mean, just on a serious note, I think with Kenin, you know, she's the Australian Open champion. And I feel like, you know, these sorts of results are the reasons why we, uh, you know, da- downplay her kind of going in, um, you know, go- going in despite, you know, being you know, being the champion. And I think I genuinely, I still think kind of when we get to, um, when we get to, when we get to Melbourne, I think people aren't, although she's defending champ, I I don't think she's going to be in that, that favorites list. But uh, having said that, I still feel like that's almost the best position you know, I feel like that's she likes to be in that sort of underdog status. We saw that at the French Open when she got to the you know the finals seemingly from nowhere, and I, you know it's sort of this a similar, it's almost a sort of similar build up, um, yeah, to that in well for for Australia. So very interesting. I think Sakari just on just quickly it very much like Sabalenka is just going to be one of those players that you're just not going to want to face. I think come come the Australian Open I mean she she had a very tough path I felt um in in Abu Dhabi she beat Muguruza she beat Kenin she had to play Coco Goff as well in in the first round so I mean she had some she had some pretty notable scalps um before getting to um before kind of facing um Sabalenka so um yeah I'll be interested to see how both of both of those do um yeah I, I think with Kenin we just got to, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see. I did note though, Kim, I was watching kind of the highlights at the end of that match. Sakari did do a little shush uh, motion <laughs> to Kenin's dad. Kenin's, <laughs> Kenin's dad. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm getting the sense Kenin's dad is like the number one, like most hated, like uh, person in the crowd <laughs> um, on the WTA tour. Yeah, I think there was a bit of aggro going on uh, again, you know, because of him, I think, continually like talking through the point and just generally being quite disruptive. So if I was Sophia Kennan, I'd be quite embarrassed by the actions of my father um but yeah i think with regards to being bageled like we can just totally write her off now joel for the ao so it's what she wants let's not talk any more about her so we'll, we'll <laughs> expect to see her in the final then in in, in yep. three weeks time or whatever <laughs> yeah um yeah so yeah we we had that and and also kim we had we did have some british action um heather watson um got to the second round um and lost to Ale- alexandra uh, who we've just kind of spoken about in in three sets, and that was a really kind of tough match. Um, Heather Watson did, I think, herself a lot of credit against the um, the twenty six year old seventeenth seed. But I want to talk about the 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 match in the, her first round. Actually, was Heather Watson versus Jodie Burridge, who came through qualifying as a lucky loser. Um, it's great to see Jodie Burridge on the WTA tour, and I'm I'm really excited for this sort of rivalry to sort of uh, hopefully prosper at that level because um, I, I'm always a fan of seeing new British players at, at such an elite level. And it was great to have a, you know, a Brit versus Brit matchup uh, in Abu Dhabi and not, you know, in an exhibition at Battle of the Brits, for example, in, in Roehampton. It's great to see that happen um, on the WTA tour. It is great, but all, although I would rather if they 
they not played each other because I'm sure <laughs> oh, Jodie Barrage has sort mm. of played Heather quite a few times, especially with Battle of the Brits. She's probably like, gosh, can't I play someone who I wouldn't normally play? Um, but yeah, no, really good. Good to see Jodie there. And yeah, not a bad week from Heather as well. Um, just a note on the doubles, we had Shuko Ayama and Aina Shibahara defeating Hayley Carter and Louisa Stefani to win the doubles title out in Abu Dhabi. Um, and then we've, yeah, we obviously had two two men's tournaments going on as well. Uh, let's begin. Well, we've got one that hasn't quite finished yet, Joel, um, due to time differences and such like the final is still yet to be played uh, when we record this. But let's just have a look at Delray Beach. Uh, first of all, we've got a final Seb Corder who we did mention uh, on last week's pod, I believe. And he's up against Hubert Herkash in the final. Um, Herkash, you know, I would say the strong favourite to win that one. He, you know, he is the fourth seed and, you know, has won a title at this level before. But really um, good, you know, performance from Seb Corder to kind of get all the way through to, you know, his first ATP final, you know, after his his fourth round appearance at Roland Garros last year is obviously showing that his his good form is is continuing and you know he even beat Britain's Cam Norrie in the semi-final in straight sets to to get there so I mean Kim even more impressive than that he beat John Isner without having to go to a tie break in any of the sets I mean that was really impressive I felt what um, history is that my gosh <laughs> um but yeah no Seb Corder has uh you know he's really kind of you know whisper it uh, quietly but he looks a very very good prospect for you know American tennis I know we've had a lot of I know there's a lot of players who we would put in that sort of category of arguably almost overhyped, you know, as youngsters, um, you know, and we'll come on to one, I feel like in a sec um, in Christian Harrison, but um, I feel like the, the hype here is almost is merited from that French open performance. And I'm glad, I'm glad to see it carry on and seeing him in the final. He, I think will go in as an underdog against um, Hubert Hakaj, but um, yeah, I think it, it just interesting on, on Corda, um, he won't be, in the Australian Open main draw, he didn't. His ranking meant he didn't make the cut, and he decided not to play qualifying and rather play, uh, you know, this, you know, this two fifty. You know, we had a bit of a split opinion. I felt on, you know, if you if you were in Corder's shoes in hindsight, I mean, would you would you have backed yourself and, and gone to qualifying? Um, you know, where the rewards, you know, getting into the main draw, etc., are probably a lot bigger than say just, you know, a two fifty event. Or would you kind of just settle for the, you know, settle for the two fifty, maybe play some challenges kind of following it? I think there's an interesting I think that's an interesting question. A lot of players, I think probably in his ranking bracket are having to answer at the moment. I mean, where where do you where where do you where do you stand on that? I think with a degree of hindsight um, I would say he's made the right decision getting to the final of an ATP 250 uh, for the first time. If he wins it, then definitely the right decision because, yeah, there's no guarantees of qualifying. Like, and it's, you know, and then you've got to do your quarantine in Australia. Maybe maybe it was that that kind of tipped the balance um, towards Delray Beach. You know, you didn't want to have to to go through all the quarantine. You know, it is obviously a quite a strict quarantine compared to perhaps, you know, Roland Garros was. So, well, I mean, there wasn't quarantine at all for Roland Garros, but um, I don't know. I, I think it's difficult, isn't it? But I think judging by his performance here, it's been a good, a good decision, I, I think, but some may disagree. Yeah, I, I think I'm in the opposite camp, to be honest, because I, I think, 
you know, I, I would have backed, you know, if, if I, I'm looking at myself, I would probably have backed myself to come through qualifying and, um, you know, and go into the, you know, and go get and make the, you know, the Australian Open main draw. I know that is a bit more risky. It's a bit more of a lottery, but I mean, he's got bags of talent and, you know, we saw that at the, the French Open. So, you know, I, I understand why he's gone, you know, this approach and wanted to do the, you know, the 250. And you can argue it has paid dividends, but I would have loved to have seen him in, you know, the Australian Open and main draw. And I certainly think he could would have come through qualifying. Um, we'll come on to qualifying later on because, you know, as you said, there are some big names who didn't who didn't make it through, you know, Eugenie Bouchard, for example. But, um, you know, I think I would have, I would have backed him. I mean, listeners, let us know. What do you think? Do you think Seb Corder should have played Delray Beach or do you think he should have gone in and done, you know, Australian Open uh, qualifying? Um, yeah, so... Yeah, we, we spoke about Cam Norrie as well. Excellent start to the season, getting to the semi-finals, picked up a, a win against Francis Tiafo along the way. Um, really, really, really promising start there. He had a promising start last year, didn't he? Did he reach the Auckland final last season at the start of the year? I think it was last year, wasn't it? So, yeah, really positive going, hopefully, into the AO for, for Cam there. But, Kim, I want to talk very quickly before we move on to Antalya. Is Christian Harrison, world ranking 789. Um, he had a bit of a fairy tale uh, story um, at uh, Delray Beach, getting to the semi finals as the 789th ranked player in the world. That does not happen too often, does it, on the ATP Tour? Absolutely not. Um, like this is a guy who has had eight surgeries in his career, um, has only two tour level singles wins, basically probably, you know, as a result of being out injured all the time and hasn't played since 2018 a tour level kind of main draw match. So to make it through to the semis, you know, he beat the top seed Christian Garin on the way there I mean it's very impressive and his poli- his politics aside which many people may not particularly like uh, if you sort of had a look on his social media um, yeah it's a fantastic uh, remarkable performance and um, obviously in, in his home country as well and um, for any listeners who don't know he is the brother of, of Ryan Harrison who is of course, much better known and and more you know successful, um, and they also did very well in, in the doubles uh, this week. So, yeah, he's obviously just having a a fantastic week, um, which is is nice, you know, for a player of that ranking to have their moment. Yeah, definitely. Although I will say, Kim, as you pointed out, he didn't wear, interestingly, he didn't wear a face mask for one of his interviews and he got fined by the ATP for that. So interesting seeing sort of player, uh, you know, ideologies on all of this, you know, their, you know, take on this new world kind of spilling over into, you know, their, you know, their place of work and, and on the tennis court. So it's interesting to see that and, and seeing how the ATP ATP reacts. Cause as you said, he's, he, um, he's definitely got some sort of some views that not everyone shares. And, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, great, great performance on court. Let's finally kind of talk about a little bit closer to us in Antalya. We had Alex Dumanor, uh, come out as champion in the final, came up against Bublik of Kazakhstan. It was a bit of a whimper though, because Bublik, I think, rolled his ankle in the semi final against Ashadi, was able to complete it, but, um, you know, gave it a go in the final, but it wasn't really working for him. And, and Dumanor won kind of two love up with a, a retirement. But again, you know, a very good start 
for De Menor. I think, you know, again, he's a typically fast starter when it comes to, you know, the season. I think he, he won Sydney. Uh, sorry, he got to the final in Sydney in 2018, won it in 2019. So, you know, I think he, 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 he is, he's very much a player who can start the season well. And, and again, I think this is just kind of testament to that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, shame for Bublik. You know, he'd had that quite a long semi against Shardy um, and had beaten Berrettini in the quarterfinals as well. So, you know, a big, big scalp, I, I suppose, there for, for him. We did not get the Caruso-Yaziri matchup in the final that we were we thought we might get. Instead, they both went crashing, <laughs> crashing out quite spectacularly in the first round. Didn't... Uh, ADM beat uh, Yaziri or Caruso. He definitely beat one of them in his first match. Yes, so. you're right. I mean, they yeah. both lost to the finalist. So, okay. Oh, there still- we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if, if only. only. If only. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but very excitingly, actually, for doubles, um, Matej Pavic and Nikola Mektic, who have a new all Croatian pairing for this season. They have won uh, on their debut week uh, in straight sets against Ivan Dodik who is also Croatian, and Filip Palasek. So, um, yeah, they took home the title there. So probably maybe the doubles team to watch uh, going into the AO. But, um, yeah, we're going to take a quick break now. Uh, but do join us in the second half. Well, we we will be looking at Australian Open qualifying and also picking up the pieces of David Ferrer and Sasha Zverev's coaching split. So see you in a moment. This is The Passing Shot. You're joined by Joel and Kim. And now we're going to move on to a little bit of lighthearted fun before we commence properly with the second half. And that is Mysterious Player. Joel, I've got one for you this week. So I do hope you are ready for... I don't think I'm going to be able to match how you did last week. You got it so quickly. I feel like I'm going to be painstakingly slow again, (laughs) but I'll, uh, I'll give it my best shot. Okay, listeners do join in, see how you get on and how quickly you can or cannot get this person. So I shall begin, Joel, with clue number one. I was born on the 27th of June, 1985. Okay, so uh, a little bit older than me. So 35 years old. Okay, so my, could, could maybe just still be playing... Um, Jeremy Shardy. <laughs> really rogue. Uh, is that because we just mentioned him? Yeah, it was um, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not Jeremy Shardy. Okay. Would you okay. like the next clue? Next clue. Okay. My father, Alexander, has coached five Olympic and world cycling champions. My mother, Galena, is a six-time world champion and holder of 20 world records in cycling. And my brother, Nikolai, was a silver medalist at the 96 Summer Olympics in Atlanta and coach of our national cycling team. Okay, so big <laughs> big cycling family, okay. Um but he this person has chosen tennis, interesting. Um okay, so big in nations that are big in cycling. Maybe Australia. Um what who about um um Simon Groth? Simon Groff. Simon Groff. <laughs> What's Sam his first Groff. name? 
<laughs> Sam yeah, that's Groff. Sam Groff. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Um, that's really random. But he did retire, didn't he, a few years ago? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's not. It's not oh. Simon Groff or Sam Simon Groff. Groff. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, oh there's not many tennis players called Simon, is there? Apart from Gilles uh, Simon, no, I, can't, seems, yeah. I can't think of any that have Simon as a first name. Um, anyway, number three, I moved to Spain in my teens to attend the Sanchez Casal Academy. Ooh, okay. Um, I, I mean, I know that academy so well. Um, yeah, no, I've got no idea. Um, okay. ne- next, next clue, please. Yep. I'm currently ranked number 36 in the world in singles, but I have previously been a lot higher. Hmm. Oh, I was going to say Christoph Rockus. <laughs> um, I don't think he's still no, in the 30s uh, in the world. Um, 36 in the world. Um David Goffan? Nope. Nope. Um, you're quite far off, I have to say. Um, <laughs> would you like the next clue? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, please. As a doubles player, I have reached the finals of each Grand Slam event at least once, winning the Australian Open twice in 2005 and 2012. Okay. Okay. The clues do get a bit easier, by the way. My next... Did you say 2005? Yeah, and 2012. Okay, so quite a big gap. Um, mm, next clue. I can hear you struggling there, so I'll move on. Um, <laughs> right. In 2019, ranked 153 and earning a wild card, I reached the final at the Western and Southern Open, defeating Anastasia Savastova, Diana Yastremska, Sloane Stevens, Karolina Pliskova and Ash Barty before losing yep. to Madison Keys in the final. Yep. Okay, I know... You know, it's I not think man. I know. I think I know who it is. All on all of that information, because I know this player has gone a lot higher um, than thirty six in the world. I think is it Svetlana Kuznetsova? Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I kind of knew as soon as I got onto that clue that you'd probably get it. <laughs> Hence, I made the first lot of clues very niche. Um, I was thinking that you would go down a Russian route when I said my father Alexander, my brother Nikolai. Um, yeah, yeah they, I probably yeah. should have, to be fair, but um, yeah, did not, did not compute, did not compute. So it's always obvious to the the person who is you know, creating it, to be honest. But listeners, let us know how you did. Was that too difficult or would, were you having an inkling that it would, might have been Svetlana Kuznetsova from the word go? Um, Joel, you're always assuming it's a male player, yet you know I, I know. normally give you a female player. I know, so, I know. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> lesson learned, lesson learned. Um Let's 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 Kim. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's draw a line under that and move on to the mailbag. Passing shot mailbag. Pass first. Passing shot mailbag of the series. Um, we've got one question uh, from Lizzie on email, and her question was: Following the seemingly endless number of coaching departures on the ATP and WTA tours, which player 
would you want to coach and what would you change about them? Hmm. Gosh, where do we start? Good question <laughs> I, yeah. from Lizzie, because we're going to get onto some coaching departures in, in, a, in a, well, in a bit. But yeah, Kim, who, 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 where, where are you thinking? What, what player and what, what would you change about them? Well, for me, the players that sprang to mind were those that you know have so much talent and have shown it on occasion, but cannot put it together consistently on the tour or even during the course of a match. And you feel like they've, they should have done so much more or could have, you know, won bigger tournaments or, you know, just achieved more um, with their talents. And for me, that person that I would perhaps coach would be Caroline Garcia, because I think she is such a talented player. And we've seen that, but her consistency, especially on serve and also her ability to kind of stay mentally strong right to the end and close out matches when she's ahead Um I I think if if I could coach that into her, because consistency mentally and um, I suppose physically um, with her shot making as well, that would she would be an absolute monster on the tour. I think if she could just put it together, because she's languishing in like the forties of the rankings, and you know she's been like four in the world, and you know I'd love to see her get back up there, but I just feel like and you know there's a lot of players who obviously. Um, you could apply this to, but yeah, she's just one that springs to mind because I just think she's such a talented player and isn't making the most of it at the moment. But I do like the fact that she is coached by her dad. I really like the family dynamic. I, I think it's really nice when players do stick with a coach for a long time and they have that great relationship. And obviously, it being like a father daughter. You know, I do love that. I think um, they're obviously very, very close. But I do feel like she could benefit from bringing someone else in. And that person would not be me, just for the record, because I don't <laughs> have a clue. But <laughs> what about you, Joel? <laughs> uh, yeah, see, I, I thought about it a little bit differently. And I have chosen someone from the ATP side. And that person I would love to coach is Denis Shapovalov, um, who I think is... One of those players, again, who's a phenomenal talent. He's still up and coming. I still think, you know, he's got, you know, his whole future ahead of him. Um, but I just want to work. The one thing I want to talk to him about and work on is his rapping, uh, skills on a tennis court. No, um, it's, um, to do with his, his shot choice, actually, because I feel like he's a player that could very easily go down the, the Guile Monfils route of, you know, being, a one for the, the highlights reel, you know, particularly with that, you know, that really, you know, top, um, single-handed backhand so uh, you know i would love to coach him and and kind of talk to him about how to kind of kind of construct a point and not try and go for the like go for the jugular straight away because i feel like that's his sort of biggest thing he needs to sort of work on is, is winning constructing and winning a point and not necessarily going health lever you know three shots into a rally for example so for me um yeah I, i've i've gone with with dennis shapovalov yeah, actually, when I was trying to think of male players, Gail Monfils was the one that came to mind because I was thinking if I could, without wanting to take away what makes him so great, which is his, you know, flashy shot making, it's kind of like wanting to channel that into consistency uh, so that he could, you know, actually use that to produce results 
at a higher level. Um, so yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from on that one. But great question from Lizzie there. Listeners do get in touch so we can feature your question on our future mailbags. Um, and just a note, actually, we had quite a few listeners um, let us know about other live scores apps um, that are around on the market for getting your tennis uh, news and scores um, uh, as a result of the the shutting down of the, the one that I think most people were using. So um, we had several suggestions. We had Red Soltina, SofaScore and the TNNS app. Um, they were suggested by Lin Pin, Amisha and Liz Curran, respectively. So thank you to everyone for your tips and suggestions. Um, I'm going to check, well, some of those out. I think Resultina is a paid one, but the other two are free. So uh, perhaps listeners, if you're not already using one of those, that could be a suitable <laughs> replacement. Um, but Joel, I think we're going to discuss some Australian Open uh bits and bobs now um as we've had quali- qualifying you know it's a bit weird isn't it because qualifying's been in the middle east and you know the actual tournament is not for uh, about three weeks so it's it's quite odd to have this break in between yeah i know it's it's really fascinating actually because um francesca jones uh one of the the qualifiers that we'll, we'll talk on we'll talk about in a bit she i love the way how she described it because it's, because essentially if you qualify you get put on a chartered flight um from wherever you are to australia to spend quarantine uh to do your two-week quarantine and she described it as a bit like being in the x factor when you move on to the next stage that's how it feels simon cow tells you that you are through and you are on a flight to the live show. And I love that. I love that analogy, Kim. I know you love your, your reality shows, your reality so, talent shows. So she's, well. not, she's not at judges houses. She's, she's in the live shows now. Is she? Well, yeah, she's gone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, it, it is a very strange setup, isn't it? Because yeah, these, these players are all effectively kind of playing to be on that, that chartered flight. Um, and, and, and weirdly for that, you know, the right to be in two weeks worth of, of quarantine. Um, but we do have our list of, uh, qualifiers, both, uh, for the men and the women. Um, few kind of notable names, uh, to talk about. Um, let's start on the men's side. Everyone's, you know, every, one of everyone's sort of favorite Aussie tennis players. No, not, not Nick, Nick, Nick Kyrgios. Bernard Tomic is, uh, has qualified. Um, he interestingly qualified. I love this, Kim. He qualified with two, uh, winning two deciding match tie breaks, um, in his final match and in the round before. And I love how, you know, we always kind of, you know, talk about Tomic as someone who is mentally fragile and always is a bit of a tanker on the tennis court, Tomic the tank engine, etc., etc. But the fact that he was able to come through uh, two match tie breaks uh, in his you know second and third match of qualifying, I mean, is this is this a changed man? And to see him back in the main draw, uh, you know, I'd love to see him come up against uh, you know one of the one of the big names because it could just be. I feel like it's just it would just be properly good car crash television. Well, I feel like he's either going to crash and burn in the first round or make it through to the second week. I feel like we could oh, okay. be in for a shock. <laughs> what, like a little bit of like a Jack Sock situation in, in the US Open? Okay. Potentially. I mean, I do think it's... I do feel sorry, actually, for the Australian players having to fly out the country to go and do qualies and then go back again and do their quarantine because it's like, you're already in Australia. Like, what? Why should you have to, you know, go halfway across the world to, you know? But anyway, um, 
And that was just when I saw all the Australian players and qualities, I was like, oh gosh. Um, but yeah, excited to see what Bernard Tomic could potentially do. Also excited for Carlos Alcaraz, uh, up and coming Spaniard who has qualified. When I saw his name in the, in the qualities draw, I was like, ooh. Um, and I saw, I think he was maybe struggling a bit in his first match, um, but he's obviously made it through. So that's that's going to be intriguing, especially if he got someone, a yeah, big name in the first round. Kim, he's the first, he's going to be the first player born in 2003 to be in a main draw of a Grand Slam. So again, potentially big talent. Uh, on the big, men's big talent side. for the future. Sorry, on the men's on side. The men's side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's fine. Um, we also have names like Victor Troitsky, you know, classic, um, who's qualified. Um, a new name though, Joel, absolutely love this. Botic van der Zanschulp. Um, I don't know anything about him, but th- th- just looking at the list of qualifiers, that name is absolutely fantastic. So I'm definitely going to read up on him, I think. Um, and then, yeah, on the women's side, Obviously, Francesca Jones of Great Britain um, has made it through. I mean, that's just a brilliant story. Um, And obviously, three solid, solid matches in qualies. But she absolutely demolished um, Lu Zhejing in the third, you know, final qualifying round um, earlier today. It's like six love, six one. I mean, what a way to to make it through to your first uh, Grand Slam. I mean, that's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, she has been a revelation, really, in in you know in qualifying, uh, for, particularly from a, a British perspective. She had that really eye catching win in the first round of qualifying against Monica Nicolescu, who was a very handy on her on her day, a very handy uh, WTA uh, tour level player. So yeah, it's a great, uh, it's really great to see. Francesca Jones, you know, 20 years old, uh, come through qualifying. I mean, her story really is a, you know, a fascinating one. She was born with a rare condition called ectodermal dysplasia syndrome, which effectively means that she was born, um, with three fingers and a thumb on both of her hands. So, you know, the fact that she's not let that get in the way of, you know, you know, her dream and realizing her, you know, her, her ambitions as a tennis player is, and is an absolutely fantastic story. And, you know, really interesting sort of feature um, in, in BBC on, on BBC Sport where, you know, we're talking about, you know, the fact that you know, when she was growing up, you know, it's, it's, you know, she was having all these sort of doubters kind of being like, you, you shouldn't be playing tennis or you shouldn't be able to play tennis. And, you know, to kind of, be where we're at now the fact that she's going to be in you know the the first round of the main draw at the Australian Open is an absolutely you know incredible achievement and you know I'm really excited to see you know what she can what she can do in the future because she's definitely a, a really exciting talent for for British tennis yeah she absolutely more than deserves it and obviously all the the ranking points and the money as well you know that you get just from being in the first round of a slam Hopefully that will obviously make a massive difference to her. I mean, just a bit of like note on what she was doing before um, before this. Obviously, she was at the Battle of the Brits that was held just before Christmas. I think she got a win over Jodie Burridge there. So perhaps it's also something. Do you think that's had a bit of an, of an impact having that being included in, in a tournament? You know, with with some very you know high caliber names, um, getting that kind of match practice in, and I, th- I feel like that's got to have some sort of influence um but actually in the summer um last year i think she had a 
a couple of good wins. Um, I mean, she had a win over Lesicki, who's obviously down very much down in the rankings at the moment but she's um you know she was ranked 350 at the start of last year and she's obviously now kind of about 241 in the world so she's she's and considering last year was obviously an interrupted season she's obviously going in very much the right direction so I'm really hoping she'll have a a decent draw um in in Australia but just really excited for her I mean yeah fantastic we should just mention, actually, um, on, on slightly more disappointing news uh, from a British perspective this week, Carl Edmund has uh, announced that he will not be at the Australian Open um, suffering a knee injury, which is a bit of a shame. Um, you know, had a bit of a an iffy, I'd say, 2020, apart from that sort of that that title he won in, in New York. But um, yeah, a bit, bit of a shame not to see Kyle um, at, in, in Melbourne. You know, we obviously know um, he's he's his sort of prowess there in the past um just looking at some other qualifiers kim another person that caught my eye one of your favorites as well uh peronkova uh, has qualified for the australian open um main draw uh you know we all saw how amazing she was uh you know at the at the us open last year so it's great to see that she's able she's been able to kind of keep up that form um and and you know is is going to be in the sort of the it's going to be in the main draw as well she shouldn't she shouldn't need to qualify she is i know what i was thinking that cut above why didn't um, she get a wild she should have got a wild card i, I know feel. it's ridiculous um i'm so glad she made it through i hope she stuffs everyone and gets to the final <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i mean joel i'm talking about favorites sarah irani one of I one know. of your favorites oh, I, I know i know all tennis fans are really i mean if they're anyone if they're like me we're all really hoping for a sarah irani kiki burton's matchup <laughs> in round one um, I really hope that happens. If you know, if we can all remember back to uh, last year at the French Open with Kiki Burton's in the wheelchair, Sarah Rani having absolutely none of it. Oh, I'd love to see that that um, matchup happen again. <laughs> happen again at the Australian Open. Um, so yeah, we've got some. We've got some. Um, yeah, we've got we've got some um, really kind of interesting uh, set of qualifiers. Um, and and I think lastly, perhaps one of the most interesting from a non non British point of view is is Rebecca Marino, Canadian player who is a really fascinating story. Kim I was just kind of kind of reading up on it in. Um, was kind of just reading up on it before the podcast. She last played at the Australian Open in 2013. Was a you know was sort of a, a professional, um, you know, back around that time. But effectively, her career sort of stalled um, in 2013. She cited kind of burnout and, and fatigue. Um, she was later diagnosed with depression and um, you know the, the sorts of things that you know I guess comes with with you know tennis fame um and you know she returned home but hey seven eight years later she's now back qualified and back in the main draw of the the australian open it's a really it's a really fascinating story uh, listeners if you want to read more of it just just type in rebecca marino into google um but it just shows you you know the sorts of journeys that you know some of these players go on to to reach you know round one of a main draw and and rebecca marino's uh story is, is a really compelling one yeah, um, really, I, I love all these sort of stories that you get thrown up with with qualifiers. And in a way, because qualies has been so much earlier, yes, we don't have that kind of, they're, they're not going to have that real like, impetus going into the tournament because they've had this break. But 
it almost gives you much more focus on the qualifying. I feel like I've paid maybe more attention to it than I normally would have done. So um, I guess it's, you know, swings and roundabouts of everything. Um, one thing um, that happened, though, during the um, the men's qualifying was a bit of, bit of controversy, um, obviously COVID related. Um, Dennis Kudler was playing Elliot Benchertree and was um, told uh, during the match that he had tested positive for COVID, um, which occurred, I think, in the final game of the match, um, which could live, could live, I can't speak, Kudler won, <laughs> won the match, was declared the winner. But obviously, because he tested positive for COVID, had to then withdraw from the event, much to ben- Benchatray's um, displeasure, because obviously... In his view, Kudler should never have been allowed to play, you know, walked onto that court if he was awaiting the result of a test. So, I mean, what do you make of that, Joel? Do you think, do you think Ben Chatree's got, got a point? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating, um, you know, sort controversial story. Um, something that we've not really heard before. Um, and yeah, and if I was in his shoes, I'd be very sort of frustrated given that, you know, Kudler had to pull out of the next round, therefore his opponent got a uh, a walkover. Um, you know, to the to the I think to the final round of, of qualifying. Whereas if you know this hadn't p- taken place, Benchatree would have gone you know gone through himself. So I definitely think he can be frustrated. I mean, very fundamentally, you know, these tests are in place, so these situations don't happen. And it's surprising. It's surprising me as a tennis fan that um, you know these these. The, the 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 tournaments are being allowed to take place with without knowing the the outcomes of the test before these these players step on court because that feels like it's just opening up um really sort of iffy kind of situations like this and also it just kind of puts the whole you know health and safety of the tournament at risk um so i i feel like you know if in, in an ideal kind of situation, these tests and the outcomes of these tests should be found out before these players step on court. Um, otherwise, um, it just puts the, you know, the health and safety of everyone on site. It, it almost kind of compromises it. Yeah, because how many people would Kudler potentially have come into some sort of contact with from, you know, making his way onto the court? And, and also for Benchatree himself, uh, you know, he, I don't know if he's had to isolate since but obviously if he was deemed to have been a, a close enough contact he would also have to like isolate in Doha um or perhaps just you know as long as he's still tested negative they'd let him move on but also it's daft it's, it seemed to be whoever won that game that that last game um would have won the match so even though Bencher Tree was was down and losing like a set or whatever down if he'd have won that that very last game he would the walkover would have been in his favor which I mean obviously he would I just, I don't know. Yeah, I think ideally you would time it so that the test was taken, I don't know, 27 hours or something before the scheduled match so that if it takes, I don't know, 24 hours, you would get the result before you were kind of ready to go onto the court. I think also just adding to that, Kim, is the fact that, you know, there are lucky losers on site. So, you know, if Kudler tested positive, a lucky loser Mm -hmm. could have replaced him. And I think that is a much better outcome than you know, what we're having, you know, from this is that, you know, we're getting walkover, you know, on the draw sheet, we're seeing, you know, walkover because, you know, someone tested positive. I think, you know, 
we should, it should you know the tournament organizers should always be of course looking to get matches played and and if there are lucky losers on site they should be brought in and i think that is a much better outcome than for example um you know uh, walkover due to positive coronavirus test no absolutely i mean hopefully this sort of thing won't be happening come the Aussie Open. I mean, can you imagine if it happened there? Like there'll be an absolute uproar. Um, but yeah, I mean, we will see what happens. Um, so Kudler's out. He won't be in Australia. Um, neither will Benchatry either, sadly. Um, on Australian Open news, though, we do have uh, a, a new exhibition event that's been announced in Adelaide. Um, which will be before the Australian Open. And that's going to be for a select few players. Um, so these players will actually go to Adelaide and uh, do, well, their quarantine there. Um, so they can then do this exhibition and then go to Melbourne for the for the slam. So Serena Williams, Simona Halep, Naomi Osaka, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal and Dominic Team will be involved in this event. Um, apparently this was, uh, designed because the organizers were worried about too many people coming into Melbourne, uh, exceeding the, the limit of people that they could have arriving. So, um, obviously you, you, you send some of them to Adelaide, um, to a second city to, and set, set up, up an exhibition, um, as you do for, for these guys. <laughs> I mean, Kim, this sounds like you're just, they've set this up to protect their best players. Um, it does a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I think, Jer- I think, you know, comments from Jeremy Shardy in, in Le Keep were almost kind of echoing the same sentiments. It sounded like, you know, the rest of the players saw this as a bit of a surprise. Um, and arguably, you know, does it help these top players even even more so? But it definitely feels like Craig Tilly, uh, you know, and, and Tennis Australia are protecting their best assets by uh, having a tournament that's not in not in Melbourne, but in another part of the country where it can be a bit more. I guess it can be a bit more isolated. Um, so yeah, so that that's that that is very interesting because uh, you know up until this moment, we've all, all we've had is just kind of be tennis in melbourne so the fact that there is tennis in adelaide um you know it's great to see i guess more tournaments being uh, made but um yeah definitely not without controversy um let's quickly quickly wrap up kim because we've got two uh, two other stories that have kind of broken this week um and we're going to talk first about very quickly about david ferrer and sasha zverev um who you know last season you know that was very much a, a blossoming partnership you know, Zverev, of course, getting to the U.S. Open, getting to the U.S. Open final. Um, you know, had a you know probably you know had a pretty successful season, I'd say, and you know, and certainly David Ferrer was integral to that. Well, this week it was announced that David Ferrer has decided um, that partnership is no more. Um, he has decided to stop coaching uh, Alexander Zverev, saying the moment wasn't was not right to extend their partnership. I mean, what, 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 where do you where do you stand on this? Do you is this a bit of a surprise, or you know, do you think you know? Because obviously, we had those allegations against Zverev at the end of the season. I can't feel that would have fit too well with someone like a family man like Ferrer. I mean, where where do you stand on this? Yeah, I mean, Ferrer's statement, you know, he hasn't said anything like controversial. He's just said everything was fine. It was just, um, you know, my decision, we're not going to carry on. Um, but I don't think he's the sort that would, you know, have a dig in public or say 
anything. Um, I, I don't feel like he would would want to stir anything up if something had gone down. So it might just be that he, you know, with with COVID and everything, it's so much more difficult traveling, and you know, he's got a young child and um, you know other commitments. So he might have just come to the decision that it's not for him but he you know Zverev has had a lot of coaching changes over the last couple of years which can't be very good for consistency um I do I I think some of the previous you know coaching changes have been more because of his attitude and and other things off court so who knows that that may well have been the case for Ferrer but I don't think we're ever likely to really know um I don't know who will be next in line either um I, I will I will await that with um you know much expectation <laughs> i mean it's it's interesting because just just on that you know we we heard also today kim that uh that carlos moyer won't be traveling to melbourne uh to be in the the rafael nadal camp and i do wonder if lockdown has sort of changed perspectives of, of some of these coaches you know they've obviously had more time to be at home with their families etc and you know they want to kind of continue that that lifestyle a bit more and uh, you know that might be the same for someone like Carlos Moya. Um, so uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to see. Let's let's quickly end on Diana Yastremska as well, because we've got another situation here, Kim, where, well, she's been she's effectively been suspended from the WTA tour. I mean, for an out of kind of competition, positive tests. Doping tests, we should Doping say. Test, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. That's exactly it. Um, again, Yastremska has come out very you know, she's come out and denied sort of committing any sort of events. But again, this is this, I mean, to me, this felt, felt quite surprising. Do you have any final comments on this? I mean, it, it just feels like a, yeah, I'm not really sure what to say about You're it. Speechless, Joel. I well, speechless. Um, yeah, she is a top player. She's world number 29, but a synthetic testosterone was found uh, in her urine sample. Um, it's a metabolite of misterolone, but she's saying that it's um, some, some con- contamination because she was tested sort of two weeks previous to that and it was that was negative. And I think this particular substance for females, it's actually um, quite dangerous to take. So um, I'm sure if, if you were doping in, and you knew that, you know, it, it it wouldn't be something you'd want to have in your system. But I, I mean, I don't know. Um, she's saying it was obviously um, nothing that she knowingly took. So, um, but she has been suspended and well, at, at the moment won't be competing in, in the Australian Open um, unless, well, unless, you know, a, another decision is made, um, got to wait for the hearing. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Love a bit of doping scandal, don't we, Joel? To start to start the season off. <laughs> oh no, it's not, it's not crazy. But I did think okay. I did I did notice uh, that tennis Twitter were quick to point out that because of this, we won't be having any unnecessary tactical medical timeouts on uh, on the court for a while. So um, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, will, I'm sure that story will develop, and it'll be interesting to see if. Yastrzemska does uh, appeal it because um, it sounds like she's very much, very, obviously very, very surprised, you know, this happened. So um, we'll see, watch this space. We'll see how that develops. But um, yeah, I, I think that's it. That wraps it up for this episode of of The Passing Shot. I um, hope you've enjoyed listening to 
the latest catch up from us. Uh, remember to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, CastBot, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button to stay up to date on the tennis world with the passing shot. And if you do enjoy listening to us on Apple Podcasts and you want to help the show, make sure to leave us a rating and comment. And you can follow us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Passing Shot Pod. And if you do have any questions for the mailbag, uh, do let us know on social media or drop us an email, PassingShotPod at gmail.com. And we will be back on Sunday uh, with our first Passing Shot Meets guest uh, of this series. Uh, We're going to be welcoming back Lee at Tennis on Telly, one of our long-standing contributors uh, onto the show uh, to have a bit of a, a chat with him. We've also got a special episode lined up next week as part of our Passing Shop Meet series um, with author Stephen Blush, uh, who's going to be talking about his new book, Busting Balls, World Team Tennis, 1974 to 1978, Pro Sports, Pop Culture and Progressive Politics. So look out for that one. We're going to be going back to our sort of Sunday slot. So watch out for our next episode on Sunday and the following Sunday. Uh, we're really excited for, for both those episodes. So I hope you can join us. But in the meantime, I hope you have enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again soon. Joel, I'm going to just have a quick look at Botic van der Zanschulp because I'm really <laughs> intrigued um, to see what he looks like, where he's from. He's got to be Dutch, right? Oh, yes. He's 164 in the world. Fascinating. He's from Wageningen in the Netherlands. There we go. I feel like his name would be a very, very good uh, score on a Scrabble board.